No. What is this place? I want to look. Leave my sister alone. Mullapoy? Mullapoy, how dare you? You didn't see it. You didn't see it. You didn't see it. See what? There was nothing there. Nothing. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching Bush Christmas from 1983. Wait a second, I thought we were watching On the Beach. You thought we were watching On the Beach. And we were going to watch On the Beach specifically because I was having such a hard time finding a copy of Bush Christmas. Until I looked online and found that it was exclusively available through Amazon Prime. Okay, I kind of got to wrap my head around this because I've been thinking about On the Beach and what I was going to say about On the Beach. So, yeah, I'm a little taken aback. <laughs> a Bush Christmas, or just Bush Christmas, depending on what poster you're looking at, is a 1983 Christmas children's movie directed by Henri Safran and written by Ted Roberts. It stars John Ewart, John Howard, and the first child listed in this movie because it's pretty much horse thieves and children. But you might recognize the name of Mark Spain. Oh, nice. Who played Skyfish. Alongside Skyfish is also James Wingrove, who you will recognize as Tubba. Okay. And the name that I assumed would be the top billed child actor in this movie is Nicole Kidman. Okay. That's a surprise to me, but I guess it shouldn't. Actors have to start somewhere. Exactly. Clicking over to Nicole Kidman's IMDb page real quick. Back when we were talking about the movie BMX Bandits, I might have mentioned Bush Christmas. It's hard to say exactly what was first without going into the nitty gritty of what month these movies came out in. Because in 1983, Nicole Kidman is credited with two feature releases, BMX Bandits and Bush Christmas, and two television movies, Chase Through the Night and Skin Deep. She was busy. Very busy in 1983. She hasn't stopped being busy. She's still in things that are coming out soon. She's going to be the queen in Aquaman, Queen Atlanta. Oh, okay. She's going to be Jason Momoa's mom. Well, I don't really see that, but... Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she only shows up in flashbacks. So it's not like they're going to be putting her in some sort of weird underwater old age makeup type of thing. Right. But that's an entirely different thing because, as I mentioned, we're talking about Bush Christmas from 1983. The story, according to the blurb on Bush Christmas, says, In the Australian outback, a family struggles to keep its farm from foreclosure. Their only hope is that their horse, Prince, will win money in a New Year's race. But then, Prince is stolen, and the children embark on a dangerous and exciting adventure to get him back. Well, that sounds like a sweet, fun family movie. Yeah. You throw in a little bit of stress on the parents' level about, oh, how are we going to keep the farm? And you get the kids off on a wild adventure. You make sure that the villains aren't too mm, threatening. <laughs> and you get yourself a nice little romp to release right around the tail end of 1983. Okay. As far as expectations go, I really don't have any. I'm not even sure I expect to be entertained. Yeah. Which may be an unfair assessment. <laughs> That's not very promising. I'm leaving room for myself to be pleasantly surprised. 
Well, truth be told, I picked out this movie specifically, not only because Mark Spain and James Wingrove are in it, they're our connection back to Mad Max, but this hiatus episode is also coming out on December 26th, the day after Christmas. So it just seems right to have somewhat of a Christmas-themed movie. It is appropriate, and I'm glad that we are experiencing more of Australian cinema. Mm -hmm. We've been exposed to it over the last two years or so, and have in general been very impressed. So a quick note about the director, Henri Safran. He was born October 7th, 1932 in Paris, and he moved to Australia in 1960 to work with the Australian Broadcast Company. He became an Australian citizen three years later and then returned to England to work in British TV, but then he moved back to Australia in the 1970s. So he's not native Australian. He's a bit of a transplant, but he fell in love with the continent so much that he just couldn't stay away for really all that long. And then Ted Roberts, the guy who wrote this movie, was born in 1931. He actually passed away back in February 2015. But he is an Australian television screenwriter and supervising producer. He got his education at Marist Brothers College in Randwick, and he worked in advertising and sales promotion before commencing his career as a freelance writer for television and film. His other television credits include work on Homicide, Certain Women, Rush, Patrol Boat, Just Us, Water Rats, A Country Practice, and Blue Healers, all of which are shows we've mentioned before. And he also worked on episodes of Mission Impossible and Star Trek. All right. Sounds like he was very accomplished. Mm -hmm. Bush Christmas stands out as one of his more recognized film credits. So he wasn't just a one-trick writer working strictly for television. But if the writing seems a little television, that's why. <laughs> okay. So as far as my expectations are concerned, these are kid actors. I've got a pretty low bar set up for them. I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that because yes, they are kid actors, but one of them is Nicole Kidman. Yeah, but it's Nicole Kidman at the start of her career. I know that sometimes talent is just there, but I also recognize that sometimes talent needs to be cultivated over a while. <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to seeing more from John Ewart and John Howard as the main horse thieves. I feel like they're going to be comedic characters in this production, so I'm hoping that their rapport back and forth with each other is enough to carry that. When it comes to that pair, I'm kind of picturing in my head 101 Dalmatians, the two thieves. Mm -hmm. From there, that's what I'm picturing. Okay. Yeah, sight unseen, mm -hmm. just looking at... There was like a two-minute trailer that I'm going to play for everybody. But just looking at that trailer, that's the sense that I get. Okay, and that's perfectly fine. Oh yeah, absolutely. So... I just mentioned the trailer. I'm going to bring it up again because we're going to hit the pause button on the recording. We are going to go watch the movie from beginning to end. All of you sit tight. I'm going to play you the trailer. It's going to be a couple of minutes. And then when we get back, we'll have watched the movie and we'll let you know what we think of it. Christmas in the bush. Riding on their champion horse is a family's dream to save their home from being sold. Prince must win, but first the kids have to rescue him from horse thieves with plans of their own. If they don't, it's their last Christmas in the bush. Bush Christmas, the new Outback Adventure. Look, all I'm asking is another six months. Then I can pay off the mortgage. I made you a fair offer. We're not selling, Carol. Not at any price. If they hang ever stealing one horse, what would they do for three? 
John Hewitt and John Howard star as the horse thieves who risk their necks to make their fortune. I'll get Prince. You get the other two. You want me to go in there? Well, how else do you think we're going to catch them? I'm more worried about them catching me. Are those thieves we've got to get, Helen? I said no. And so begins a strange and unusual Christmas. Which it is? Well, people eat snails, frog's legs. But eating live widgety grubs under the stars was not everyone's oh. idea of a traditional Christmas dinner. He must have a weak stomach. You would certainly want Aborigines. I don't think they'll like us being here. Trapped and captured, but determined to get Prince back, the kids take on the horse thieves. They're taking my boots. And they're taking the food. How can I sing without my boots? Bush Christmas, featuring the Bushwhackers. Bush Christmas, the story of a Christmas one family will never forget. He can do it. He can. <laughs> you know, Sly, it's been a nice Christmas. A real nice Christmas. <laughs> and we're back. That was a rather quick 90 minutes, would you say? Yeah, I think it was. Despite the fact that there didn't seem to be a lot happening in this movie, I still took, let's see, one, two, three and a half pages of notes on the plot, but we'll get to that eventually. What are your initial reactions for Bush Christmas? My initial reaction is that I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. It was not what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be funnier, for yeah. one. I thought it was going to be a little bit more along the lines of like a mismatched pair of villains being goofy, trying to run away. And yes, they were a mismatched pair of villains, and they were a little bit goofy, but not in that way. Not in a 101 Dalmatians kind of way. Okay. What are your initial thoughts? Well, the movie is harmless enough. It didn't offend me. It didn't thrill me. It was all right. I mean, it was the kind of thing that you would expect to see on like one of those uh, stations that plays nothing but Christmas movies for the entire month of December. Yes. At one point, it did occur to me, this is a Hallmark movie. Yeah. This is an ABC family made movie. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It didn't offend me in any way. I didn't dislike it in any way, but I didn't like it. Yeah. There was nothing that really hooked me and made me feel invested in the characters. No. You know? The tone of the movie from the get-go is such that you know there's going to be a happy ending. You know that they're going to get the horse back. The horse is going to win the race. They're going to pay the mortgage. Yeah. When you start off a family movie and the main thrust of the conflict is, oh, no, we're going to lose the family farm because the mortgage is due. They're not going to end the movie with them having to sell the farm back to the bank. That's not how these movies work. <laughs> no. And I suppose that that 
trope is a little overdone. Yeah. When did this movie come out? 1983, two years before Beyond Thunderdome. Okay, so maybe that trope wasn't overplayed in 1983, but it certainly is now. Well, the funny thing about Bush Christmas is that it's a remake. Very true. When we were looking at the opening credits, it said based on Bush Christmas by some other person. Let me see if I can pull that up real quick. Which we knew that going into it, right? We knew there was an older version. Yeah, so back in 1947, there was a movie that was released. It was an hour and 20 minutes long called Bush Christmas. The general synopsis is in Australia, five children pursue horse thieves through the mountains. So add two kids. Well, you probably add one kid and then they looped in the uh, Manapoi stand-in in the new one for one of the kids. You get what I'm trying to say, though. Five kids chasing after horse thieves to get their prize horse back. But there's not much else significant about that 47 movie that really stands out to me. So we won't worry about it. Okay. Generally speaking, we would prefer to watch the original movie, but that's not the movie we have a connection to. Right. That's not the movie with two actors from Beyond Thunderdome and an actress who would become one of the most famous actresses in the world. Mm -hmm. That's just Nicole Kidman for you. (laughs) (laughs) Should we get into the story? Yeah, let's dive in. The opening credits are played over a, not really a riding montage, but it's a display of Manapoi and his riding ability as he's galloping around this property with Prince, the prize horse of this family. And this horse is owned by the Thompson family. Father Ben, mother Kate, daughter Helen, and son John. And then there is another child in this house named Michael. So Michael is the one played by James Wingrove. And it's not immediately apparent what his relationship to the family is because they keep saying things that make it seem like he's not actually a family member. Yeah, they don't even tell us outright that he's not one of the kids. I thought they had three kids until you get to hear him talk a little bit and his accent isn't Australian, it's British. And then later on, he starts talking about what Christmas is like in England. Mm -hmm. I think the way it works is that Michael is Ben's nephew from England. I think so. There's a point at the very, very end of the movie where Michael calls Ben Uncle Ben. Yeah. Which does not bode well for Uncle Ben. No. Not good things happen to Uncle Ben's. Heaven help him, (laughs) is all I can say. So after the opening riding montage, the family piles into their ute and they drive into town because Ben needs to meet with the moneylender. The guy who, I guess, works for the bank or owns the deed or something like that on the property that they all live on. He's the one that they're paying the mortgage to. And he's a guy named Derby Mulcahy. But the idea is that the mortgage is due, like the mortgage itself, not like the next payment or anything like that. The mortgage is due on New Year's Day, and they've had floods, they've had lean years with a drought. They're not in really good financial state right now, so there's a lot riding on this horse race that's going to be taking place New Year's Day, and they are certain that their prize horse Prince that we saw riding in the opener can win that race, get them all of this winning money, and then they can pay off the mortgage and be done with it. Yeah, a quick jump ahead to the end, where obviously we know that everything works out. The stack of cash that Ben hands to the banker guy doesn't really seem to be a lot of money. Well, we don't know the denomination of those bills. That's true, but they would have to be $100 bills. 
And there was only a few of them. Well, even in 1983, like a couple hundred dollars, that's not bad. That's not money that you would just have lying around if you've got this big old homestead that you've got to upkeep. Yeah, okay. And Ben has two kids, one nephew, at least two farmhands. I think a total of three, because Manapoy is the one who takes care of the horses, and then he's got two other guys that help him drive the cows later on in the movie. Yeah. So he's got employees that he's got to worry about. He's got a family he's got to feed. They don't have just a ton of disposable income lying around. So the money from that race is the windfall that they need to just pay it off once and for all. Right. I'm just saying it's not that much money. I know it's a lot of money for them. Money is relative, but for paying off a mortgage, it's only a couple hundred bucks. Well, it's yeah, just not that much. We don't know how far into their mortgage they necessarily are. It just didn't stand out to me as odd. Oh, totally did to me. Like I was the whole time I was expecting him to write the banker guy a check, not to actually hand him cash. I think another thing we don't know from this movie is what the odds were against Prince. Because if the odds were stacked against Prince, then he could get really good odds such that he could put in a certain amount of money and just get a ton back. Right, and his winnings weren't his betting winnings. They were the purse. That's true. I don't think Ben actually bet on the race. I think he just took the purse. Yeah. Which, you know, we don't know exactly how much that town threw in for the winnings of this race. It could be a significant amount. Like, this is a big annual race. I imagine that they have enough money to make it well worth hiring a professional rider. Right. It's hard to tell on hiring the professional rider. It's hard to tell if that was out of, I want to win this race so that I can have the money, or I want to win this race so that he can't win the race and I can get his farm. Well, that's at the end. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. We are. <laughs> because in that initial meeting, Ben is very adamant, no, I am not going to sell. My farm is my farm. You can't have it. After we get that little scene, we get the introduction of this band, the Bushwhackers, who are rolling into town. And they are a real band. And they are being managed by these two actors, Bill and Sly, played by John Ewart and John Howard, respectively. And they are there in town to play a concert for the townsfolk. The townsfolk while they go to the dance and they dance and they have a good time, there are a few comments, mostly from the kids, from Helen and Michael and John, that their brand of music isn't really appreciated. <laughs> well, the Bushwhackers are a Bush-style band. They've got all the improvised instruments. So yeah, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And these are kids after all. They probably would prefer to listen to that American rock and roll that they just got last week. <laughs> But as the band is getting ready, we overhear Bill and Sly, and they are a couple of shysters, and they are hatching a scheme to take the money that they get from all of the entrance fees and run away with it. They are going to stiff the band and just get out of there because the bus is falling apart. They have barely enough money to pay the band the money that they owe them, and so they are going to just smash and grab, cut and run with their winnings. So we get this first big scene it's very long drawn out. There's plenty of dancing. Michael is all about dancing with Helen. I guess he's sweet on his cousin or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it's the little things like that that make me think that he's not related at all. It might be like a exchange student program or maybe Ben's got a friend back in England and he wants his kid to see the world and so he gets sent down to Australia or something like that. Yeah. It just would make more sense that way. <laughs> Right. <laughs> when he says Uncle Ben, he doesn't mean literally uncle. It's never he, well defined. Right. 
He means male authority figure that's not my father. So over the course of this dance hall scene, it's really an opportunity for the actual band, the Bushwhackers, to play some of their music and show off a bit. And the character of Sly, played by John Howard, is the lead singer of this band. And I think in reality, he's not the actual lead singer. It's just for this story, that's the character they wanted him to play. So he's up there at the front and he's singing all these songs. And at one point of the concert, Bill is backstage counting up all the money and one of the band members leans over to the other one and says that he overheard Bill and Sly scheming and so the entire band leaves the stage with just Sly up at the microphone singing and they go backstage and they make Bill give them all of the money that they are owed. Which is a wonderfully awkward scene for Sly who is a performer. He is an artist. He wants nothing more than to be on stage singing. And he's trying to keep going as one by one the band members leave the stage. And he's left there with no music. And he actually sings the last few words with no music at all. Yeah, he's slowly becoming an acapella act. Yeah. <laughs> Once the band has their money, they pretty much leave. So the dance is over, everyone's leaving early. And as the kids are walking out with their parents, Bill and Sly are in the tour bus and they overhear the kids talking about the big New Year's Eve race. That they've got the horse that's the fastest in town and they're going to win. And so Bill gets the idea that they are going to follow this family back to their homestead, steal their horses, and then just go around the country entering horse races with this super fast horse so that they can get rich. Bill is obviously the brains behind the operation, but he does miss one crucial detail of his plan. Is that who is going to ride the horse in these races? Yeah. Horse racing, which I know nothing about, but what little I know is that it's not just all about the horse. The rider matters too. You need a skilled rider to ride an excellent horse. Neither of them are skilled riders. Bill is fine. But he's older. He's not in shape. Right. And Sly is... It cannot all, sit a horse. All style, no substance. Exactly. <laughs> so the family is driving back to the homestead. They're in the family ute. They're singing and whatnot, carrying on. And following behind them is this rickety old tour bus just barely holding it together. In fact, as soon as Bill and Sly stop their bus somewhere at a distance from the homestead, the tire blows and Bill informs Sly that they don't have a jack because he sold it and they don't have a spare tire because he sold that too. And their only way out of this situation is to go ahead with the horse stealing plan. There seems to be a number of moments in this movie throughout the movie where modes of transportation are all of a sudden gone. <laughs> and so people are forced into a course of action at that point simply to save their own lives. Down in the homestead itself, it is one of the days leading up to Christmas. It's yeah. At the very beginning of the movie, I thought it was Christmas Eve or already Christmas Day. Yeah. And then when they pull up to the house, they mention that they're going to trim the tree and then it's time for bed. So I know a lot of other cultures that celebrate Christmas don't trim the tree until Christmas Eve. So I thought it was Christmas Eve. And then we find out it's not Christmas Eve. It's sometime before Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. But we have no idea what day it is or how long till Christmas Eve or how long till the big race on New Year's Day. No idea. It's Christmas just time. one of those days. And this is where we get to hear Michael talking about how it just doesn't feel like Christmas because it's too hot out and there's no snow on the ground and what you the heck are they going to eat and all that sort of stuff. He's just complaining. He's a whiny British boy. Yep. You know, it doesn't snow that much in Britain either. <laughs> 
It's not in London. <laughs> yeah. Although there's plenty of snow in Hook. We talked about that. They're amazed because it's not usually snowy in London. Mm, they make a good point of that. Yeah. There's also another subtle connection, you could say, to the Peter Pan mythos. Michael and John? Yeah. I would have given anything if they named Helen Wendy. It would have been such a simple thing. They didn't do it. No. Nope. So Bill and Sly sneak over to the animal fence, and that's where they overhear Monopoy calling out to Prince and feeding him something. So they're able to identify the prize horse out of the herd, I guess. There's three horses in the pen. Not like it's a big pen to pick from, but they know which horse they're after. And as Monopoy leaves... Puts all the horses in the one pen and Bill and Sly, they sneak into the house and they steal a bunch of supplies. Bill steals a gun, disables the family radio and Sly steals a bunch of food and they grab the horses and go. Something I like about this movie that is showcased in this moment when Bill disables the radio and steals the gun is that they don't hold your hand. They don't expositionally say, I'm going to disable the radio now. We even asked out loud, what the heck did he just do? He like lifted up the lid to a box, pulled something out, closed the box, grabbed the gun, and then left. Mm -hmm. I thought he grabbed ammo. It's not till the next day where they go up to the radio trying to call for help and they're like oh it doesn't work they look in the top and there's a piece missing like oh that's what he did we'll figure it out eventually we just don't need to know in that moment that he is disabling the radio this whole idea of finding things out eventually transitions us into the next morning where ben gets up early gets all of his stuff together gets a couple of guys and they are driving cows somewhere to go sell them the idea initially is not so much prince is going to win us all the money that we need the idea is i'm going to drive a bunch of cattle to a place sell them and then come back with the money and so pretty much everybody's awake on the homestead the dad leaves with the cows to drive them and then and only then does menopoy go over to the horse pen and notice that all of the horses are missing this drives me nuts there is food missing from the kitchen mm -hmm. the radio is broken there's a gun missing and three horses are missing and i know that when they're getting ready to drive the herd out their attentions are elsewhere but they had obviously been up and about for quite some time before anybody noticed. And I call shenanigans on that. Yeah. I how, don't think that's realistic. How could no one at least glance in that direction and notice that something is off? Like, come on. Right. If Monopoy's job is to take care of the horses, he would have been up and with the horses probably before dawn. Like first thing in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's actually earlier than we think it is. Half of this movie is shot day for night. It is. And there was a point where I was just really tired of seeing that. Yeah. I feel like every other scene was supposed to be at night. Yes. Which is confusing because especially cutting back a little bit when they leave town after the dance and they're heading home someone makes note that it's a two-hour drive home so we know quite a bit of time passes mm -hmm. when they're leaving the dance it's twilight and it's obvious that it is supposed to be twilight when they get home it's still twilight looking yeah and they don't drive home with the headlights on they Ni don't neither of those vehicles had headlights on oh that's true. They didn't. That whole shooting day for night thing can be confusing when we're also witnessing Twilight. Yeah. I'm just counting real quick what day was when, because we know when Christmas was. That's true. We could have counted backwards and we would know what day it was. Okay. So the morning that it's Christmas, 
is the fifth morning that we see in this movie. So counting backward, where five is the 25th, we start on December 21st. Okay, so the dance is on December 21st? Yes. Okay. Unless I counted that wrong. Oh, I did count that wrong. So the dance is on the 20th. Okay. I'm trying to decipher my chicken scratch notes. Right. Reverse engineering a calendar is difficult. Yeah. In fact, I probably missed at least one or two notes. (laughs) (laughs) about in the morning, in the morning, in the morning. I tried to keep track of those. But anyway, morning of the second day, horses are missing, dad leaves, mom and the kids and Manapoy start noticing that things are just gone. And the kids are adamant that they want to go after these thieves. And of course, mom is like, no, you're a bunch of kids. Right. You're not going after those horse thieves. Nuh-uh. They discover the horses are gone not long after Ben leaves with the cattle and the other ranch hands. Kate decides to do nothing. Mm Mm-hmm. It is the safest course of action for her children. But down the road, when she is in dire straits, left alone, she walks to find Ben. So at this point that we are in in the movie, there are still four horses. Why didn't she send Monopoy after Ben? He wasn't that far away. Mm -hmm. They know where he's going. They know exactly what road he's on. He's not going to be hard to find. Why didn't she send Monopoy after Ben? Yeah, they do nothing that first day. No. That entire day, they do nothing because the kids don't sneak out until the end of the day. Until that night. Okay, I think I kind of answered my own question. Is that Ben was taking the herd to sell them and that would have gotten them the money that they need. Right. So at first, that's what they were staking all their hopes on. And she didn't want to get in the way of that. So, okay, I answered my own question. All right, then. (laughs) As I mentioned, night falls. Monopoy and Helen decide that they are going after the thieves. And so Helen wakes up Michael, telling him that he needs to tell mom where Helen and Monopoy went. Which totally backfires. Because Michael and John decide to come along. And now instead of the horse wrangler and one kid, it's the horse wrangler and three children. Yes. I got the sense that Monopoy intended to go out by himself and woke Helen to tell her. Mm -hmm. And then Helen was like, heck no, I'm going with you. Let me just go let Michael know where we've gone. And Michael did the exact same thing. And John did the exact same thing. Yeah, it makes sense that Monopoy would want to go after these horses because he is the horse wrangler. He is the one that has been training with Prince this entire time. He's been looking forward to this race the entire year. So it makes sense that he would want to go after this horse. And the kids are just precocious. They are. They're not incapable. Michael is because he's a city boy. Mm -hmm. But Helen and John are pretty tough. Yeah, they're farm kids. They are. They've been working since they were big enough to actually do anything. And I think John is probably relatively new to the idea of the hard work of a ranch because he is pretty small. But he holds his own. Absolutely holds his own. He's even offered to be carried once. And he was like, no, I don't want to be carried. Mm-hmm. And of course, mom doesn't notice that all the kids are gone until the next morning. The morning of... Third day? Day three. Out in the fields with a full day's head start, Bill and Sly stop and they finally decide, okay, well, if we're going to be racing this horse around the country, one of us should know how to ride. And so they take turns with it. Sly is useless. 
comically he, useless. He's got all the trappings of a bush rider, but none of the skill. And he explains that he's dressed up with the boots and the pants and the hat just as a show because he's the lead singer of the Bushwhackers. So he needs to be dressed like a Bushman. Mm-hmm. And so Bill tries riding and just fails miserably. He does fail miserably, but in a more successful way than Sly. Yeah. Like he fails because the horse is too fast for him to control. Mm-hmm. So for Bill, it's just a matter of practice, getting to know the horse. Sly... There's no way he's ever going to ride that horse. There's no hope for him. So after their failed riding attempt, they cross a river in an attempt to cover their tracks, and the kids just keep on after them. They stop for the night after tracking these guys all day, and they're awoken in the middle of the night by something. They just hear something. Michael stays asleep, but Helen wakes up. John asks her what's going on, and so Helen goes exploring. She discovers that Manopoi is not in his bedroll, and as she's poking around in the woods, she discovers that he's standing up on this rock, and he's apparently calling out to someone that he knows is there. He's doing a song. Yes. I think this aspect of the movie that Monopoy has connections. I like that it's subtle, but I'm not sure it pays off well enough. It is very subtle. It definitely helps them. Yes, because, it does help them. Because over the next couple of days, Monopoy and the kids are able to keep up with Bill and Sly because Monopoy's people, as they're described, the Aborigines in the area, are keeping an eye out for these two white guys with three horses that are traipsing through their territory, I guess, and they're leaving clues so that Manapoi and the kids can just follow those clues. And the kids aren't the wiser. They have no idea what's going on. And we as the audience are more or less in their perspective. And so we see Manapoi doing all of these behind-the-scenes things, and we're not necessarily supposed to understand what they are. Mm -hmm. At some point, he does say, these are clues left by my people. And yeah, and I think it's that scene where he says, these are clues left by my people, that he names the tribe. And I, for the life of me... Can't remember what the name was. I tried to remember it when I heard it, but now I can't because I didn't take notes like you did. Yeah, I completely missed it. Back at the homestead, mom has lit an SOS fire hoping that Ben will see the smoke and think something is wrong. I really appreciate that she's finally acting like a bushwoman. Well, she tried to fix the radio. Yeah, but not on the first day. That's true. She didn't try and fix the radio or set the SOS fire or leave the property until the kids were already gone. Mm -hmm. And I definitely understand not leaving the property herself because her responsibility is to the kids. So, of course, she's going to stay then. But the first thing she should have done was to try and fix that radio. And then, since that didn't work, send up the SOS. So on the fourth day, the kids set off in the morning. Manapoy has found some food for them, some berries that they can eat. And they looked like raspberries to me. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of did. Which looked remarkably store-bought. Mm-hmm. Like, perfect. You don't find perfect raspberries out in the world. Not really. And elsewhere out there in the bush, they hear a gunshot because Bill has seen a big old fat rabbit and he shoots it using up one of the rounds of ammunition that they have. And so Michael and John get really worried that, oh my gosh... Someone shooting at us, and Helen's <laughs> like, no, that was way too far away. Chill out, they Michael. They run so fast. Were they on their horses? I think they were on foot, and I think Michael dragged John into a bush. Oh, okay. That makes sense, because I was a little surprised that John ran into that bush. 
Hmm. But Michael dragging him makes perfect sense. This is the day that it starts raining. Yes. So Bill and Sly are just caught outside. They're standing under a tree. It's very miserable for them. But Monopoy finds a cave for all of them to congregate in. And so they all get in out of the rain. He sends them out to find wood. Michael complains the entire time. You get the sense that Michael isn't comfortable with the fact that Monopoy is an aborigine. Oh, yeah, we haven't brought that up yet. He has made a couple very racist comments. And then he accidentally made a racist comment and he heard himself. He's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that. Monopoly didn't really believe him Mm -hmm. because Michael had made actual racist comments in the past. And if he was making racist comments during the movie, then he was making them before the movie. Yeah. Fat English kid with his fat English sensibilities. Mm -hmm. Those Brits. (laughs) Uh, Those are my people. That's my ancestry right there. Yeah. It gets to the point where Monopoy gets them a fire started. He starts a fire for them and they come in with armloads of wood and he's like, okay, we need more wood. And Michael's like, well, what's the use of getting more wood? It's all wet anyway. And Monopoy's like, fine, I will go get wood. And Michael's like, well, I'll go with you. And he's like, no, you're going to stay here, get all your clothes and put them by the fire so they can dry off. And so the kids pull out their blankets from the saddles and Helen is over there and she's draping this blanket over her shoulders because she's going to like do that weird thing where you kind of hunch over, I'm assuming, and try and keep the blanket around you while you change. Yeah, that never would have worked. Michael certainly did the nice thing by holding the blanket up for her. For Helen, there were other ways to solve that problem. How about all three of you go get firewood? I will stay, get changed, tend the fire. And Mm -hmm. then when you guys come back, you can change. It was funny because Michael was holding up this blanket for Helen and she thanked him for it. And he said, oh, I'll turn my head. John, you should turn your head too. And John's like, I've seen it all before anyway. She's my sister. And Helen was like, John, you're such a butt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's such a little brother. He is. I mean, at least his haircut is better in this movie than it is in Beyond Thunderdome. Oh my gosh, it so is. It's so much better. I was really taken aback by his appearance at first because it was so different. Yeah. I wasn't really paying attention to which movie was older and which movie was younger, so I didn't know how old he was going to be. Yeah. So when he was the little boy, I was surprised. Yeah, this is only two years before Thunderdome. That's an important two years for a young child. Yeah. Huge difference. (laughs) So by the time Monopoly is back with the wood that he's gathered all the kids are wrapped up in their blankets Manapoy has a good laugh about the fact that they all look so ridiculous okay I was a little confused by that laugh the nice little chuckle that he had Mm -hmm. they did what he told them to yeah but they still looked funny I guess so I kind of took it to be a chuckle that oh they're just white kids who don't really know how to survive out in the wilderness I have to take care of them and they're sitting there around the fire being weak which they weren't they took a trip out in the rain to get wood and they were going to take another trip but he told them not to so i was a little confused by his chuckle so you think it was just the appearance of three naked children bundled up in blankets kids just wrapped up like little burritos next to a fire not that aborigines are known for burritos that's a different culture altogether but you you get what i'm saying it looked like burritos to me (laughs) okay 
you get the idea. So it's on the morning of the fifth day that they start out after all of the rain has blown through. And under normal circumstances, they would have lost the trail entirely. But it's at this point that they come across a fork in the road and there is a line of stones placed across one of those trails. And they're like, oh, hey, who put those stones there? And Monopoy's like, oh, my people did. They've been helping us this entire time. Mm-hmm. It's also at this point that mom leaves the homestead and starts walking after her husband. So when Kate leaves the homestead, starts walking after Ben, she has changed into work clothes. Yeah. But they're obviously not her work clothes because they're too big for her. They are Ben's work clothes. Mm. Why doesn't she have her own set of work clothes? She lives on a ranch. I know that he takes care of the ranchy stuff. She takes care of the homey stuff and everything gets done. But is there really never any occasion for her to go outside and work? It's hard to say. I am assuming just because I'm in a relationship and there's work to do, that there is occasion for Ben to do something inside the house. Now, it's funny that you should go off in that direction because I thought those clothes were hers and the reason they looked so ill-fitting is because she starts off walking and then we cut back to her a couple of times and each time she looks a bit more disheveled and I thought, oh, it's just that she's been walking so long. I thought that those were her clothes and that they just looked so ill-fitting because she had been walking for so long. If that's the case, I wish we had gotten a shot of her actually leaving the house. Mm. Like a quick shot, quick, just a couple of seconds of her like finishing putting on her clothes, like rolling up the sleeves or strapping on the belt and we see how she started and see her walk out the door and down the road and then see her get more and more bedraggled. Yeah, I think that scene just needed another shot. Okay, okay. Elsewhere, Bill and Sly have reached the top of this hill that they've been climbing for the last day or so. And Sly, of course, is exhausted. And Bill points out, okay, we've climbed one hill. We need to go down. And then we're going to climb up another one. And then we're going to go down. And he says, oh, it's only about an inch on the map. And so Sly says, well, how many inches do we need to go? And Bill says three. And we get this funny little exchange where Sly's like, I can't walk three inches. And Bill's like, obviously. (laughs) That was pretty good. I liked that. I really liked that play on scale. That might be my favorite joke from this movie. Yeah, I I might have to agree with you. So they start riding downhill. Meanwhile, mom has caught up to dad. Kate has found Ben because Ben is riding back to the homestead with all the cows. He tells her that he got to the cow buyer, I guess, and the foreman took one look at the cows, laughed, and then sent him on his way. So these cows are not fit for sale. No, and I think we were supposed to already know that when Ben was in with Derby Mulcahy talking about how it's been a bad few years, I think he mentioned that things are getting better, but it takes time for a good season to translate into good crops to translate into healthy cows. That takes time. He needs six months for the good weather to actually bring him profits. So I think we were supposed to understand that Ben and the crew taking the cows was a long shot, Mm -hmm. that it was not a guarantee. But I did not understand that. I was surprised. Yeah, it's kind of weird. But now that Kate has caught up to Ben, he picks her up, puts her on the horse, and they all start going back to the homestead. Ben gives control of the herd over to one of the hands and then tells another to come with them. And the three of them ride off, leaving the one guy to just bring the cows home. Are cows the type of animals who know where they live? I think so. Okay. 
And he probably has a team of dogs mm -hmm. as well. Speaking of dogs, cutting back a little bit, when we're watching Kate walk out to Ben, some of the shots that were up higher, there was a dog with her. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, I completely I thought missed that. Was, that. I thought that was kind of nice. Hmm. Back with Manipoy and the kids, they catch up to the top of the hill and Manipoy decides, okay, we're going to stop here for now. We'll look for tracks in the morning. And Michael second guesses him and Manipoy's like, oh, you want to go look for tracks? And Michael's like, no, I wouldn't know what to look for. Yeah, like, yeah, that's when <laughs> that's when he accidentally says something racist and he doesn't mean it and he apologizes. So Manipoy decides that he's going to go out, find them some food. John is totally on board to go help Manipoy find some food. So the two of them go off, leaving Michael and Helen with the horses. Helen, of course, decides to wander because she's a kid. That's what yeah. they do. And she stumbles upon a stone circle on the ground, which is revealed in later dialogue to be a sacred spot for Manopoi's people. And she just kind of wanders into it. All right. Living out there as they do and having an aborigine employee wouldn't they know that his people are out here and that they have a culture that is very different from their own and you shouldn't step on that culture i think it's literally and figuratively i think it's more just childhood ignorance than any sort of willfulness Shame on Kate. Kate, who I'm assuming probably teaches them everything. I can't imagine that they go to school. It's a two-hour drive. It's probably homeschooled. She should have taught them about the people that they share land with and should have taught them, if she doesn't know anything about their culture, that's fine, but at least teach the kids to respect their culture. And this is obviously a piece of culture. This is something that was placed there on purpose that she doesn't understand. It's obviously something placed there by the people who inhabit this land and that she doesn't understand. She should have had at least enough knowledge to know to walk away. Yeah, but she's also a teenage girl and she's curious. <sighs> I guess so. I'm just saying, Kate should have taught them, don't be curious, be respectful. Is that how you were as a teenager? Well, I didn't live on land that abutted a completely different culture than my own. You never once went somewhere that you weren't supposed to, to investigate something that you found odd? No, no. I've never, that I can recall, have never grossly stepped on another culture. Rick, you have. Yeah, but I'm not the one on trial here. <laughs> Helen is the one on trial. She wanders into this stone circle and Monopoy at a distance sees her do this. And so he rushes, grabs her around the waist and pulls her out of this circle because apparently it's not a circle that girls can go into. He makes some comment about how she's a woman and the women aren't supposed to go in there or something like that. It was all very frantic and I didn't actually get the details. That was pretty much it. So that night... As they're camping, John and Monopoy have found a lizard. They killed it. They brought it back to camp. And this is their Christmas Eve dinner. So Michael complains about the food because of course he does. I was a little bit disappointed that Helen also complained about the food. I, she's better than this. <laughs> you can't tell me she's never eaten a lizard. It's, it felt out of character. She has been tough and helpful this whole time. Never once has she whined about anything. Michael is the whiny one. Everybody else is capable and just willing. And then all of a sudden, Helen is whiny about the lizard. Yeah, it was kind of weird. I can understand them whining about the second course that Monopoy provides, which is these just gigantic fat grubs. Yes. 
like wood widgets or something like that. I didn't get the name exactly. It's one of those things. <laughs> my favorite thing, though, and one of my favorite parts of this movie, I think, is that John is like, "Ooh, yeah, yum. And he just gobbles one down. It's fantastic. He doesn't even hesitate. He picks up the biggest one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was great. Of course, Michael's got a weak stomach. He doesn't even try one. I don't even know if does Helen try one? No, she doesn't. OK, yeah. she tries a piece of lizard and then spits it out. Very disappointing behavior, but Michael is just completely soft. Meanwhile, Bill and Sly, they're eating rabbit because they shot one the day before. I was a little bit confused by the disparity in their meals. Mm -hmm. Bill and Sly have a shotgun. It's a shotgun or it's a it's rifle. some sort of rifle, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's a rifle. One shot and they get a rabbit. Dead well, as yeah. a doornail. Yeah. And then we have a trained and skilled tracker hunter type who has a, what is that weapon called with the, the flinging spear? I think he only has the spear. You don't, I don't think he has the other part of it? I don't know if he has the other part of it. Oh, well, I still think that the kids and Monopoy should have been able to catch more than just a lizard. I have nothing against the lizard itself, but I am surprised that that's the first time they hunted. That's the first time they caught something, at least that they show us. And I would assume that they're showing us everything. So you're a little bummed out that they didn't keep looking, that they just stopped at the first thing they found? Well, why was the first thing they found so many days in? It's a good point. That's good what point. I'm curious about. Why did they wait so long to hunt? But this is Christmas Eve and John is bemoaning the fact that this is not an ideal Christmas situation for him. There's no Christmas dinner. There's no promise of presents. He's not going to get a bike or a train or an air rifle or any of those things that he saw when they were in town at the beginning of the movie. A cricket bat or a knife. And as we hear John moaning, we cut over to Michael and Michael has a folding knife. Which in his possession. is a little curious if it's just making an appearance now. Yeah, seems like a useful tool that would have been pulled out earlier, but uh -huh. it is what it is. Mom, of course, is at home all alone because Ben and his ranch hand have gone out to look after the kids. So she's got an empty house for Christmas. And she's really sad. She wanders over to the tree and turns off the lights. And it's very sad. I really do feel bad for her. Every step along the way, she has been left behind stranded kind of like moira in hook yes exactly and moira didn't even get to like send up an sos bonfire or go after ben at least kate did stuff mm -hmm. she was proactive in the rescue of her children but at this point she's just left there also, here in the Christmas Eve scene, Helen apologizes to Monopoy for trespassing on his sacred site. And Monopoy's like, well, I forgive you, but my people aren't going to forgive you. And so Helen's like, oh, what are they going to do? And he's like, nothing. And she's like, oh, OK, well, that's not bad. And he's like, no, they're not going to help us anymore. <laughs> they're going to stop giving us aid. That's bad. <laughs> Yeah, he's very matter of fact about it. Either he's just taking the situation for what it is and he's just going to move forward without their help or he says he's forgiven her, but he hasn't really forgiven her. That's what his demeanor says to me. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that he understands that she didn't mean anything by it, but it is pretty important that they're not going to get any help from here on out. Yeah, it's like forced nonchalance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the next morning, Bill and Sly keep moving, and Monopoy climbs a tree, and he spies them about a mile off. This is kind of uh, another day where nothing really happens, because Monopoy finds them, and then he tells the children, we'll wait till nightfall. The plan 
that he's cooked up is that they are going to sneak into Bill and Sly's camp, steal all their stuff back, and just leave Bill and Sly high and dry. Yeah, this whole steal all their stuff thing? Well, everything that Bill and Sly took, they took from the homestead. Yeah, but those are not the important parts. Right, the horses are the important part. Yeah, the tin mugs are replaceable. The food is gone. They didn't even take the water pouch for crying out loud. It would have been so much easier just to take the horses and go. Mm -hmm. The problem came when Helen tried to take Sly's boots and got caught up in his arms because he slept with one of his boots like a teddy bear. Mm -hmm. That was the first problem. And then the second problem was when John... John was sneaking along and he knocked some rocks off of a ledge and it alerted Bill initially. And so Bill jumped up, thought there was someone sneaking into their camp. Monopoy threw them off with the sound of a dingo and then he went back to sleep with the rifle in his arms. Right. And John tried to take the rifle. Now, back at the homestead, they never even noticed that there was a rifle gone. Yeah. So why did John care so much that they get it back? Well, he might have noticed. They just didn't make a big deal of it in the movie itself. If they didn't show it to us, it didn't happen. Okay. I'm just, why do they care so much about the objects? Take the horses and go. But in trying to get the gun back, it goes off, waking up Bill and Sly, and they just start firing wildly into the night. It's a miracle nobody got shot. But as the kids run away, John falls into a hole. And so Helen jumps in there with him to keep him quiet. And Bill and Sly are left without horses, without food, without water. Because Manopoy throws a spear through their water skin and it leaks out everywhere. Is that his one spear? Maybe. Do they have no spears anymore? I think it's the one spear that he throws. Yeah. Okay. But in the morning, Bill and Sly, they're undeterred. They wake up and they're like, all right, let's find our horses that were taken. And they walk right by John and Helen. Yeah, I was a little confused why John and Helen were still there. Mm -hmm. Why hadn't they gotten up and moved on? Well, it's important to note here that the kids don't have the horses. The horses ran off because they were startled by the gunshot. Yeah, it's a little bit unclear, like, what happens during that chaos. Mm -hmm. I think now all seven horses are roaming free, which is bad for everybody. Yeah. And John specifically, he's got a weird limp and whatnot. So they stop and Manapoy's like, oh, I can just carry you. And John's like, no, I will not be carried. <laughs> and... It's at this point that they stumble upon this abandoned homestead. You know what occurred to me while watching the movie? I assumed that this was another homestead where Darby Mulcahy forced the owners out. Mm -hmm. And this is what happened to it. Nothing. It's now abandoned. So there's really no point in Darby Mulcahy taking properties. It's all about money. It's not about the property. Yeah. There's not really a story behind this place. It's just a bunch of abandoned buildings. Mm -hmm. We don't get any details. We get shown off that there's a main house and that there's a cold house where they hung slabs of meat and whatnot. They go into the house proper and the place is completely cobwebbed over. There's still food on the table. There's a snake that frightens them. And as they wander into a back room... Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. They find this corpse. And this person has been dead for a long time. But it's that situation where the body is facing away from everybody. So Michael walks up and he's like, excuse me, ma'am. And the corpse spins around and is this like skeletal figure. And Michael just collapses. I thought that was pretty great. I thought it was pretty accurate. If that was me, I pr probably do the same thing. <laughs> You're in he this creepy abandoned it, yeah. house and you think you finally found the owner and the chair spins around. And not only is it 
a dead person. It's a skeleton still wearing glasses Mm -hmm. and clothing. That's terrifying. Yeah. What's equally scary is the fact that Bill and Sly have caught up to them. So they grab Monopoy and all the kids and they hang them up in the cold house because they're all these hooks hanging from the ceiling. And so they hook all of the kids up on those hooks and they're just hanging there flailing because they can't reach the ground. They can't reach anything. And the horse thieves are just taunting them. Yeah. So I was noticing they're flailing and I'm like, kids, stop being stupid. Stop flailing. You know, it's not going to do anything, but they continue to flail and flail and flail, which it turns out that I loved because they were putting on a show. Mm-hmm. As soon as the thieves closed the door, they were like, okay, let's get out of here. And so they got out pretty quick. Monopoy takes his hands and just lifts himself up into the rafter, gets off the hook. He frees all of the other kids and they just bail out a back window. They would have gotten away scot-free, but I think Monopoy getting caught up on a nail in a window, it delayed him long mm. enough that Bill and Sly had time to get back. I don't know. I know that's what the movie showed us. That's what they wanted us to believe. But if Monopoy had gotten out the fraction of a second earlier than he did, you could still see the kids right out the window running away. Yeah, it's not like they had a huge head start on the horse thieves. But from that point on, I saw that nail sticking out. And I'm like, somebody is going to get impaled. (laughs) Nobody got impaled, thankfully. But what does happen is that Helen falls into a well... And there's no lassie to go get help. And somehow Monopoy and Michael also fall into the well. They're standing at the opening trying to figure out a way to help her. And Sly and Bill come along and there's some sort of kerfuffle. And the other two then fall down into the well as well. Yeah. And it appears by their actions of breaking things during the fall that the well has started to leak more than it already was. So there is water collecting in the bottom and it is collecting faster and faster. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense of panic about this that, oh, no, we better get out of here. It's filling up. It's to my knees. It's to my waist. At first, I was like, you idiots, just tread water until it reaches the top. Then I realized I got a good look around. The place is entirely covered in mud. They can't swim because they can't get above the mud into where they're just in water. Yeah, they can't lift their feet out of the mud because... There's nothing to lift against. Exactly. You can't tread water fast enough to pull your feet out of mud. That's not how treading water works. No. (laughs) So there is a very real danger for them staying in the pit. Bill and Sly at first are like, oh, we better get them out of there so that we can tie them up and keep them quiet. So they go off to get a rope. While they're going to get a rope, they realize, why don't we just leave them in there? Why are we going to do all this work to get them out? So they put the rope down just next to the building there. And then they find the horses. Yep, and leave. The horses are just hanging out at the homestead. It's incredibly coincidental. Yeah, it is. But they have their prize racing horse. They have their own horses and they are getting away. And John has to run around this homestead trying to find something. He grabs three or four bridles that he sees hanging up on the wall, completely missing the rope sitting on the ground, not a foot and a half away from him. It's incredibly close. Slide has some misgivings about leaving the kids behind, but Bill is initially, no, we'll leave them behind, it's fine. But he doesn't realize that they are actually in danger of dying. Yeah. They're like, no, they'll figure out how to get out. They'll do it on their own, no problem. Someone will find them. Yep. 
Everything will be okay. John lashes the bridles together and Monopoy is able to get out because Michael hoists him up. And once Monopoy is out of the hole, they're able to get Helen out of the well as well. But only because (laughs) Michael was able to hoist her up. So now that two of them are out of the well, they know that those bridles aren't long enough to reach all the way down to Michael. So they're really not sure what to do. Bill has a change of heart and decides to go back to help the kids. So he shows up. He's got the rope that they left behind and they pull Michael out of the well. And not a moment too soon. He was barely keeping his mouth above water at that point. Mm -hmm. But they save him. It's fine. And in exchange for saving them, Bill says, okay, you're going to let us go. You're not going to follow us. And he thinks that he can take the horses. But the kids say, no, you're not getting the horses. You still broke the law. We're taking these horses back. The fact that we're not going to turn you in is reward enough for saving us. So when the kids catch up to their dad, I guess catch up might not be the They meet right somewhere term. in the middle. Exactly. Between the two homesteads, they meet somewhere in the middle. And they have all seven horses. And dad is so glad to see his kids fine and that Manopoy has prince and everything is great they all go back to the homestead and they can prepare for the big race remind me is their homecoming the day they save themselves and meet up with their dad is that still christmas day or is that boxing day boxing day is the day after christmas right I i think it's the day after boxing day because i think boxing day is when they see the horse thieves and sneak into their camp okay So this would be December 27th. Okay. Because the race is on New Year's Day and we cut straight to the race. So they get back home on the 27th, 28, 29, 30, 31. So Prince only has four days to rest. Yeah, he's been climbing over terrain for a long time and he only has that long to rest up for a gigantic race. I don't know how resilient horses are. I'm assuming they're pretty resilient considering they've been used by humans for so long. But even so, it's quite the ordeal to just bounce back from. And the race, I think, isn't really that bad. It's an eight mile race over relatively open terrain, although it is hilly and there is a stream. Yeah. So it's no picnic, but it's only eight miles which for a horse just doesn't seem like that much. No. I think really what it's all about is being able to maintain your high speed for that course. I think all of the horses finished the race. It's not like it was so hard that people were going to drop out. Everybody finished. So it was really about your speed. And Prince just didn't have the rest that he needed after doing something that he was not trained for. Going up and down those hills that were bordering on mountains, I would say. Although the galloping that we see Prince do at the beginning of the movie, that's some pretty steep terrain that he's going up and down. It is, but it probably wasn't more than eight miles. That's true. So it's here at the race that we discovered that the mortgage holder guy, Mulcahy, he has purchased a steeplechase horse and hired a professional jockey with the express purpose of beating Ben's horse in the race. Because Prince is just being ridden by Monopoy, and he's just a horse trainer. He's not a professional jockey or anything like that. And so the race begins, and it's not a good start. Prince gets turned around and Monopoy has to struggle to get him going in the right direction. Yeah, there are a couple of huge missteps by Prince and Monopoy that kind of baffled me. 
they've trained for this race. So in that training, I would assume they would have gotten Prince used to reacting to the gun with a bunch of other horses around. The elements of the race that the horse has to deal with hmm. were probably practiced. Oh, is this Prince's first race, do you think? Maybe. They don't never really say. mentioned that, you know, he's been good to them in the past or that he's an up-and-comer. They don't really mention anything about that either way. They just keep saying how fast he is. Uh-huh. So it's a two-lap race, four miles per lap. At the beginning of the first lap, Monopoy has a little trouble with Prince. At the end of the first lap, he's in last place, but he's gaining ground. So in the second lap, Monopoy gets right up into second place, and then the lead, the professional jockey, does this thing where he, like, throws out his hand and knocks back Monopoy, and so he loses a little ground there. And then I missed what happened around the stream, but Monopoy actually falls off of Prince at one point and has to struggle to get back on. I'm pretty sure Prince fell down. I was concerned for the health of Prince. I'm pretty sure he lost his footing entering the stream, because I think the approach to the stream was downhill. Mm-hmm. So you're going downhill and then into the stream, turning right to follow the stream for a little while. And at that turn, Prince lost his footing and actually fell down. Despite that setback, Monopoy and Prince are still able to get back into the second place position as they're entering the final stretch. And because this is a family movie with a happy ending, they cross the finish line in first place and the family get the pot. So they're able to pay off the mortgage every Everyone's happy. As the bookies are handing out the winnings, we're watching everyone's feet and we notice that there are two people there without shoes, like torn up socks, and it's Bill and Sly. They bet on Prince to win and so they got a bunch of money for winning the bet. Where did they get the money to place a bet? Maybe they had money left over from paying the band. No, the band took everything. I don't know them. I assume they stole it. They They stole enough to place a nice healthy bet. They don't get away unnoticed though because John notices Bill. Yeah, they come face to face right as, for lack of a better term, an MFP officer wanders by. So true to his word, John doesn't say anything and Bill comes face to face with Ben and he just compliments him on his horse and then they just go their separate ways. Bill and Sly get away with it is what I'm saying. They do. They absolutely get away with it. Not only do they get away with it, but as they're walking into the sunset and the credits are about to roll, they're talking about a different scheme to pull. They want to use their race winnings to buy a shearing farm, but they don't want to buy any sheep. They want to steal sheep from neighboring farmers, shear the wool off, and then return the sheared sheep to the farmers. Sly's response to this proposal is, well, isn't that stealing? Bill says, no, it's only borrowing. We're going to give them back. It is stealing. You're stealing the wool. Yeah, these guys are not the smartest. (laughs) Yeah, that is the commodity that sheep are kept for when they're done doing that then they're meat but in the meantime they are wool so these guys live to steal and swindle and do whatever else another day it's one of those things the family is taking care of their farm is secure their horse won they pay off the mortgage and everything is fine and no one suffers any bad consequences just like a good old Christmas movie. Yeah. Even the other villain, Mulcahy, doesn't suffer any consequences. Yeah, he still gets his money. Yeah. And not that he was supposed to. His brand of villainy was following the letter of a contract. Yeah. So just because he didn't get to take the farm 
doesn't mean he is to be punished in some way. Right. He was going to win no matter what. Either he was going to get the mortgage money or he was going to get the farm. Exactly. So the only comeuppance that Mulcahy gets is maybe a little bit of embarrassment. He'll get over it. He just got handed a stack of cash. Exactly. That will make everything feel better. And that's the movie. Was there anything in it that stood out to you as your favorite part? I think my favorite part was seeing the kids actually being helpful and capable. Mm -hmm. They weren't over the top capable. They still needed an adult who was particularly skilled in tracking and hunting and the things that they needed to stay alive and succeed, but they weren't helpless. I really appreciated that. Hmm. That is very closely related to my favorite part of this movie, which is Monopoy himself. Mm, He's mm -hmm. so capable and has everything just under wraps. And he's got a plan and he's got a response. And even when he loses out on help, he still has the capability to do something about it. He's my favorite part of this movie because he is so freaking capable. Yeah, he was pretty great. And he's so quiet about it. Not so much that he doesn't talk a lot, which he doesn't talk a lot, but you know. We like protagonists that don't talk a lot. Yeah, we do. Yeah. The kids talk enough for everybody. Yeah. He's just very matter of fact about being so capable. Mm -hmm. I really like that, especially in the scene where they are hung up in the cool room, the cool house. And as soon as the bad guys are out of sight, he just, easy as you please, gets himself down. Handles the situation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Was there anything that stood out as your least favorite thing? You know, like I said way back in the beginning, there was nothing in this movie that offended me. There was nothing that I didn't like. And even now, specifically looking for things like, oh man, I really didn't like that, or that didn't land. Nothing stands out. How about you? I'm much the same. Sly's complaining started to get old very quick. If I had to pick one thing, that might be the thing that stands out as my least favorite part of this movie. It's like, I know that we were going for the bumbling criminals and one of them is just not good at his job type of thing, but it got a little tiring after a while. Yeah, I can see that. There was something about Sly that I couldn't quite put my finger on the entire movie. And it kind of occurred to me afterwards that he looked so familiar. And I know that he's in Fury Road, right? He's the one... John Howard? Hold up. He's the people eater. Yeah. So I knew that, yes, I am supposed to know him from something, but that wasn't it. Because I have no idea who the people eater is. We haven't analyzed that movie yet. I don't know the characters' names yet. But I figured it out. He looks like a young Bruce Campbell. Oh, oh yeah. That's what it was the whole movie. Okay. Yep. I think the fact that we have a hard time pinpointing things we don't like, I think that's kind of a detriment to the movie. It means the movie didn't take any chances. Yeah. It played it very safe with more or safe. less everything. Yes. The movie was incredibly safe. Well, it may have played it safe, but we were still able to talk about the movie for longer than the movie's actual runtime. Oh, yeah. Now, keep in mind, that's before I do any of my edits. The final length of this episode may fall under the <laughs> one hour, 27 minute mark <laughs> because I do cut out all the pauses and things like that. That's a little behind the scenes peek for you people listening. I don't release these conversations as they come out. We're not that snappy and quick. Oh, I promise no. you that. Julia, do you have any final thoughts or recommendations for this movie? I don't regret spending my time watching the movie. Hour and a half, not that long. It was not a waste of my time, but I also can't recommend to other people that they go spend an hour and a half of their time watching it. Of this genre, of the out in the bush 
genre, there are other movies that are better. This one's just so middle of the road. Go find a better one. As for me, I still stand by the fact that this movie didn't offend. It didn't blow me away. It's just very middle of the road. As far as seeing it as a Christmas movie is concerned, it is a break from the norm. When you talk about those family-friendly, family-safe Christmas movies that they play all of the time here on cable television, this would be a good break from the norm because it's not snow, it's not Christmas wreaths, it's not overblown, it's Christmas in another part of the world that a lot of people don't think about. So I can appreciate it for that. Yes. But the fact that it is just such a safe movie, it didn't thrill me. It didn't capture my interest, really. I was paying very close attention because I was taking notes on the plot. But I could possibly recommend this movie if someone wants to plop their kids down in front of a TV and have them watch a movie with interesting terrain and people traversing said terrain and examples of how other people have Christmas in their area, but recommending it to an adult, I would have a hard time doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I am glad to say that this is a kid's movie that I'm walking away from with, I would say, ambivalent to positive feelings about. (laughs) That's not always the case. So the fact that I can walk away from this movie and be like, oh, yeah, it was was, was a thing. It was not not bad. So you see this as a kid's movie as opposed to a family movie? Yeah. Okay. I see this as a kid's movie akin to to something like Happy Feet. Okay. I still see it as a family movie. Yeah. That the intention, at least, is that kids will understand and enjoy what is happening, but so will the adults. Yeah, I can see that. But as for us, that is a wrap. That's all we've got for you today. So we are going to hang up the microphones and we will be back in two weeks with another hiatus episode of the Mad Max Minute. If you are interested in finding out what we are going to be talking about next time, keep an eye out on our Facebook group page, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. You'll hear all about that in our outro. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. A Bush Christmas is presented by Baron Entertainment. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is Aussie Jingle Bells by Bucko and Champs. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for the Mad Max Minute. See you next time.